So, so last week I messed that up. We were supposed to do that, and I. Let's uh, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come before you as your people. We humbly beseech you for your church. Not just this church, but your church in the world. We pray that you would be pleased to fill it with all truth and all peace. Where it's corrupt, we pray that you would purify it. Where it is an error, we pray that you would direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, we pray that you would reform it. Where it is right, we pray that you would establish it. And where it is in want, we pray that you would provide for it. Where it is divided, we pray that you would reunite it. We pray that for the sake of him who died and rose again and ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. And God, we pray uh, that you who has made of one blood all the nations of men to dwell on the face of the whole earth and did send your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. We ask that you would grant all men everywhere that they may seek after you and find you. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon all flesh, that you would bring the nations into your fold, that you would give the nations the inheritance of your Son to him. We pray that you would hasten the coming of your kingdom. And Lord God, we know that you are the God of mercies. We ask that you would make us true servants of our community, imitators of you, as we show mercy to the needy in our midst. We pray that you would comfort with the grace of your Holy Spirit those who suffer sorrow, sickness, or adversity today. Lord, in particular, uh, we pray for uh, Rafa. Father, you, you see what goes on in this world. You know it's not caught you by surprise. With the changes in law comes a response. Father, we pray for Rafa that you would shore up that ministry, that you would strengthen those who uh, give their lives in service to women uh, coming with pregnancy. Father, we pray that uh, you would see and uh, grant what's needed for that ministry 
to continue to do their work, not just in responding to those who come in need, but, Father, in advocating for the protection of the unborn. Father, we pray for all who struggle. Father, that you would grant consolation. Father, we pray again that you would remember those who suffer persecution for the faith. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would grant us as your people the wisdom and the faith that we need to be your vessels in all of this work. Pray those things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're coming near to the end of, of James. Uh, I'm not going to finish it. Uh, we're just like a step away from finishing it. If you'll stand with me, uh, we'll have the reading of God's Word. This comes from James chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. James says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we pray that you would do all that you intend to do through your word this morning. We pray that you would convict us. We pray that you would comfort us. We pray that you would console us. We pray that you would strengthen us. Father, through this word, by your spirit, we pray that you would kill us and that you would raise us up. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So how do you respond to suffering? We started that last week, and there was um, a lot of flailing and waving of hands that I did in struggle, my own struggle, to navigate, to think through, how do you deal with this persecution? So we sort of pan out a little bit, and ask the broader question, maybe as we sort of gain entry in this, how do you respond to suffering? If we're going to be shaped into the kind of people who hold fast to the Lord in the midst of persecution, perhaps this is a good place to start thinking through that. How do you respond to suffering? In this passage, James shows us the peril, gives us a couple of ways that we can get off track. 
as we're sort of dealing with suffering, two holes that we can fall into. And then he gives us promise, a focus of meditation and reflection that takes us in a different direction, that helps us to navigate this thing. So we'll start with the peril, and that's verses 9 and 12. And 12 is kind of funny because it's sort of like this transitional, maybe, this transitional phrase, um, or transitional verse that connects to really 1 to uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to uh, uh, t- 11, but then kind of takes us into the last part of this, 13 to 16. So I'll try to show how that works. And I'm sure you're like, yeah, I can't wait to see that. But just hold on. You'll, you'll, just wait. I can come up with something. I promise. I, I mean, and again, remember, we're sort of taking this idea, or I've been taking, working on, along this idea that James is writing to these leaders who are in the middle of persecution, right? The, the leaders in this church in the middle of persecution, and they are trying to navigate this, and they've not done a great job. They've yielded to some zealotry. Here's how we're going to deal with it. James is calling these folks into question. So he comes to this first hole that they could fall into. He says, do not grumble against one another, brother, uh, one another brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You kind of hear the connection already to 1 through 7 what we looked at last, last week. There, the coming of the Lord was something that was encouraging. And here, he's saying, oh, well, this, this, this just checks you, too. This notion of grumbling against one another in the midst of persecution and pressure, you know what that's about. I mean, we all do. We've all experienced that. I think James is, is really, he's sort of hearkening back to something he's already touched on in James 4, 11 and following. There he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I think he's hearkening back to that. This gets at something that we're doing when we are under pressure and we start grumbling. The bottom line in uh, James 4, 11 and following is that what you're really doing is you're standing in the place of God at that point. Standing in the place of God. Condemning. Accusing. Okay? So there's that little touch point. You can see, though, this grumbling, a better picture of it, from Israel. And many of you are familiar with with the way this works out in Israel. It's a classic case of grumbling and groaning. And so I want to pull these things together. Exodus 15, Exodus 17, and Numbers 
14. I'm not going to read all that. But there, Israel is accused of grumbling. In Exodus 15, they're grumbling about bread. Something to eat out in the wilderness. In Exodus 17, it's drink. We don't have any water. And then in Numbers 14, it's about going to war. Water, bread, war. These are the things that were their primary concerns. And in all of those cases, what they do is they, this, this grumbling, they're in the middle of pressure, and their grumbling goes horizontal. They accuse Moses and Aaron. Why did you bring us out here to kill us? Numbers 14, I will read just a little bit of that. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, and you all remember this, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Captivity is better than this. The people want to go back to slavery. In verse 4, they go, well, let's get some new leaders that will take us back here and do this thing right. And then in 10, after Moses and Aaron are like, listen, we could just trust the Lord. Well, they pick up stones to stone Moses and Aaron. But then we get the other side of this. It wasn't just that they grumbled against the leaders, one another. Numbers 14, 26, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Water, bread, War, in all of these instances, here's something that we can connect to. In all of these instances, for the people, to them, it was a matter of life and death. In the midst of this pressure, pushing against them, they feared for their very survival. It was as though their very existence was in danger. And their answer to the problem was to grumble. Kind of understand that. We could certainly see the parallel with James' audience, right? Life and death, they're being persecuted. James makes that clear. Makes sense that James would say, don't grumble against one another. That's a danger. It's our story with a little bit of twist. Our, our grumbling flows from the same sort of context. Every day, you experience these little wildernesses. We see ourselves desperate. Something is absent. And so we want to lash out. Anybody ever done this? Anybody ever done this? Um, you are wondering where your 
your, your phone is? You done this at home? Where's my phone? Where is that phone? I just, I just had the phone. I left the phone right there. I know what happened to my phone. You took it. You took my phone. I saw you with my phone. You had to be the last one to have my phone. I saw it. What did you do with it? Why are you always touching my stuff? You always touch my phone. And when I need my phone, I can't have my phone. What, you're destroying my life. You've taken my phone. Oh, here it is. I'm sorry. You do that, don't you? Right? Why do we do that? Right? I'm out something, and it's your fault. We get under pressure, and we do that. We get tense. And it's like it just seeps out of us, and we go on the attack. My survival is at stake. In some ways, it, it goes a little bit differently. It's my survival is at stake. Why aren't you helping me? You may not be killing me, but you're certainly not getting in the way of it happening. What are you doing? So you got all the usual suspects what we need for life that other people are either getting in the way of or not helping us with, you know, that could be any given category, you know, the money, the power, pleasure, comfort, safety, security. Oh, a good one is control. We want all that stuff. And we feel like our life is going to end if we don't have it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get you. We go bad on each other. And we go bad on God. Because that's what we're also really doing. I'm not just calling you into question. I'm calling him into question. Why are you letting this happen? So grumbling, that's a big hole that we can fall into. Incidentally, you know what's interesting, and I guess this may be why James uses this, well, why this word is used, is it's the, the word for grumbling there is groaning. And so before, you know, just want to touch on this, groaning is not, well, I guess it is, well, there's a sense in which it's inherently, it's not inherently sinful. Romans 8, 21. It's so funny that he read from Romans because these were all things that were places where I was going to touch and go. So I'm glad you introduced that, Mark, in your prayer. It's perfect. In Romans 8, 21, well, back in 20, it says, Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of, excuse me, yeah, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Same word. James is saying, don't groan at each other. Paul is saying, we groan. In 2 Corinthians 5, 4, he says this. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What, what we already see, if we sort of back up and look at groaning, is what point James is going to be making, is that you're going to groan. The question is, how do you groan? How do you suffer? Is it leaning into God with hope or pushing away from Him? The other hole that we can fall into is verse, comes in verse 12. Right? But above all, my brothers, do not swear by either heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Right? James is really quoting directly from Jesus here, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Jesus says the same thing. You know, you don't, you don't swear by Jerusalem. You don't swear by the altar. These little lesser things, these are lesser than God. And so, therefore, we can sort of, you know, kind of get around some of that. That's what he was critiquing the leaders for. Jesus was critiquing them for. He says, no, 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 it all belongs to God. The idea is you're accountable for your affirmations or your denials, Right? You're accountable that they glorify God, and you're accountable to Him for keeping that commitment, for not vacillating. So here's what you do. You're accountable to honoring Him by your content and by the completion of whatever it is that you swear to God. James seems to be taking that and applying that to, um, to, these, uh, to the leaders of the church. Again, remember... The leaders in the church originally, not only were they tempted, but they actually engaged in zealotry, taking up arms, engaged in violent conflict, right, to obtain freedom. It's not a stretch to see that there would be calls to a commitment to this fight. Right? These backroom oaths of commitment 
to do whatever it took to get free of this persecution. These O's to bring down destruction on those enemies. Binding together. Agreeing together. We're going to do this. Well, James is calling that into question here. Because it doesn't honor God. It doesn't glorify God. I mean, he said it earlier in the letter, right? The anger of man, doesn't, that doesn't bang out to the righteousness of God. He's calling in to question oath-taking that's aimed in the direction that doesn't please him. What kind of oaths do you take when you suffer? Have you considered that? You take oaths, these little things that you do, and it goes a couple of different ways, our oaths. Right? It, it, it goes, we either bargain or we plot. And these are usually the things that you say under your breath. Right? With the bargaining thing, we're in some difficulty, some situation, and, and, and what do you say? Lord, if you would just please do this, then... Anybody do that? Oh, Father, if you would just come through on this, then it would all be, I could really, I would be able to. You do the, that's, that's an oath. And then you get the, the darker, right? You may not do as much of this, or, or maybe you do, right? The plotting. Say something, like, you know, particularly when we're angry, we say something like, so help me. Oh, okay, yeah, that got you, right? So help me. And you may not say, I swear to God, right? We're all better than that. I swear. I swear. I'm going to, if I have to, I swear. Right? Now, that if you don't say those words, you feel that movement in your response to suffering, to pressure, to the stuff that's going on around you. We take these oaths, and we can sort of put these two things together in a sense. If you think about it like this, it's sort of like magical thinking. We take these oaths, we engage in this, because what we're really after is trying to get some kind of control so that we can make sure that whatever it is that we need for our survival, our survival is either gotten or not taken away. Those are the ditches that we can fall in when we're facing suffering. And the great thing about this is that this takes place at really low levels of intensity, like 
blaming somebody for taking your phone. And it takes place at these high levels of intensity, like somebody wants to kill you because of what you say about Jesus. It's a broad spectrum. All right, so those are the perils. If we're going to navigate through that, where does James take us to promise? He draws our attention to promise in verses 10 and 11. Let me just start with 10. He says, as an example of suffering, excuse me, of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As an entry into the promise held out for us here, James simply uses this one verb, take. Take. I just found that interesting. He didn't say, let's think about, although that's, that's sort of kind of the sense here. He didn't say consider or count. He did that in chapter 1, right? He doesn't use a word specifically, directly, that takes us to this notion of reflection, right? He, he uses a word that is more, I can't, it's so funny, there's no, way, there's no way not to, I'm trying to think of another way to say this, and there's no way not to keep coming back to this uh, metaphor. He uses a word that causes us to, to, to think of this idea of grabbing hold of. It's like he wants to say, you know how, to, you know how you're going to learn to deal with this? Here, give me what you're holding on to, and I'm going to give you something else. Take this. What does he give us? He gives us prophets. He says, take, as an example of suffering and patience, these guys. And he doesn't just say, he puts two things together. Prophets, Right? And those who, what is, how does he say it? Spoke in the name of the Lord. He takes those two things and puts them together. I mean, when we go, okay, well, yeah, they're prophets. That's what they do, right? They speak in the name of the Lord. Well, not all of them did. But more, maybe more to the point is these prophets speaking in the name of the Lord, that was the reason for the suffering. And it wasn't just the reason for the suffering. It was what sustained them through the suffering. Have you, have you spent time, and I think this is what he's calling us to, and it's, 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 and it's hard. We were just talking about this on, on Wednesday night in Young Adults. It's kind of hard because it, it's, not the, it's not the sort of direction that he gives you that immediately, oh yeah, this is going to help me, right? It's not, it's not like a tool like that. What he's asking you to do by taking whatever it is that you're using to deal with suffering and giving you, giving you this, the prophets, what he's asking you to do is to spend some time 
living inside of that world, that guy's world. Well, he doesn't give us a specific one, but, I mean, nearly everybody, nearly like all these commentators, will say, oh, the the first one that comes to mind, this may have happened for you, the first prophet that comes to mind, talking about suffering and patience, is Jeremiah. Right? So, oh yeah, some of y'all were. Y'all were like, oh yeah, that's, there you go. That's exactly what I thought about. Here's Jeremiah, right? The prophets spoke in the name of the Lord. Let's climb into this world. We hear it in his calling. Jeremiah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, imagine this, imagine this. The word of the Lord, this is Jeremiah reflecting on this. The word of the Lord came to me. Hello, word of the Lord. How are you today? I'm fine, Jeremiah. I've got something to say to you. Do tell. Here's what the Lord, the word of the Lord said. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet of the nations. Here, the Lord's. You know what Jeremiah said? Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. Here's the word of the Lord coming to him, and all of a sudden he's feeling it. Ugh. I, I don't know how to do what you're telling me to do. I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. And then in verse 9, the Lord put out his hand, touched my mouth, and said to me, behold, I put my words in your mouth. start to climb into Jeremiah's world to see from out through his eyes and we get this very visceral experience of anguish and call and pull. How did it turn out? Huh. Jeremiah 26 And when Jeremiah had finished speaking, right, all the word, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people, they laid hold of him and they said, thank you for speaking this word to us. No, they said, you shall die. What did he say that had been so? He said, he didn't say anything really big. He said, hey, Jerusalem is going to be desolate without inhabitant, right? It's all going down. 
And then leaders later on in verse 11 said, Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. And then Jeremiah spoke and he says this in 14, But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon the city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak to you all these words in your ears. That's the guy that James says, hey, give me that. Now take him. How did he do that? Jeremiah. One verse I skipped and then one that came later. He's really important. I mean, not to mention that you have the word of the Lord coming to you right, right in your face. In verse 8 of chapter 1, that word of the Lord said, Do not be afraid of them. I am with you. Verse 19. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you. That word of the Lord, not just some speech, This person, God, was with him. That sustained him. Jesus said something very similar. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you, and falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Ha! You are happy if this stuff happens to you. Yuck. And rejoice and be glad. That's what Jesus is saying. You are blessed because of this. Why? Why is this a happy thing? Why is there, and you know, and don't do the whole, you know, well, happy is not the same thing as joy. That doesn't really compute. The Bible doesn't do that. Blessed, happy, rejoice, joy, Right, those that they mean what they mean in the midst of persecution. How? Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. What's the reward? Stuff? Is it gold coins and gems? Shiny things? Is that it? It's the same thing that it was for Jeremiah. 
I am with you. Your reward is me. That is fuel for suffering. We have him. That is what we start to see as we climb into the worlds of these prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And it's a good thing because, according to Jesus, right, they persecuted the prophets and persecute you because you step into their role. So James intends to break the power of sin with groaning, right? And intends to strengthen our ability to groan in the direction of God in faith by calling us to hold fast to our God, to Him. I guess that's the first the first answer to the question, how do, I, how, do I, how do I prepare for this? How do, I, how do I know I can deal with suffering and persecution? I guess it's the first place to start. Does it matter that he is with you? Does that mean something to you? Does he mean something to you? Is he that glorious? Is he that's satisfying to you. My. Well, lastly, and here's the last thing, the promise, this last part of this, is verse 11. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Behold, James says, behold. He says, hey, take a close look at this. You got the prophets. Here are the prophets. Oh, take a good look at this too. This is really important as well. And then he says this funny thing. He says, we call blessed those who remain steadfast. Okay, well, now there's a, maybe that's the second thing that he's doing here. Do you? Me. Do you call blessed those who remain steadfast? When what, what kind of world, right, what has to be going on for that to make sense? For us to go, yes, we do. That's right. That's right, James. There's, there's some stuff that has to be there. There's some grammar that has to be there for that to compute. And what James does in that particular sort of statement, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast, is he's really referring back to what he said in, all the way back in chapter 1, which is so funny because Mark read that. Let me just touch on it again. James chapter 1. Remember, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. And then in verse 12, here's the other part of that. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised. What has to be true there? For us to agree with him, yes, blessed are those who remain steadfast. What has to be important to us is trust in God. Because in chapter 1, what James said was, steadfastness comes from somewhere. It comes from the testing of your faith. Trust in God. And that trust in God for testing of your faith to have any sort of get any uh, uh, um, 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 traction with you. The importance of trusting Him has to matter, has to be significant. I want more trust in Him. I want my trust in Him to be deepened, to be strengthened. Which is, I guess, another way of saying is, I want Him. That has to be significant. That has to be important. And of course, if it is, that follows the rest of the way, right? That His promises will matter to me. And His promise of life will matter to me, which is another way of saying, right? The crown of life is not, it's crowned, right? The crown of life is you get life. And what is life but life with Him? That's got to be important to us. You've got to ask, is it? Has that been crowded out? Maybe that's the place to begin with this question of how do we get through suffering and persecution? How do we do that? It starts there. He illustrates it with Job. And we know what happened to Job. He was tested through suffering. In fact, he was persecuted. I mean, something that I hadn't, I don't consider, hadn't considered much is, you know, that his friends were there, right? Because you imagine if, if, if things are going bad, and the theology is things are going bad, because you've done something. So we need to fix that so things won't go bad anymore. Well, if you're the guy who seems to be the one who is doing the bad stuff, we're going to have to deal with you so that all of this bad stuff will end. So, in a sense this argument that Job is having is really fighting for his life here. These guys want him to own something so that he can be dealt with. And we know that the accuser, right, Satan accuses him. God allows excess. James lo- I mean, Job loses everything. He's stripped of it all. He's the one that Job gives to us. 
I mean, or James gives to us. So how is it that Job, Job is this, this picture of steadfastness? What happens to him? Well, through it, maybe this is, maybe this is where we could head with this. Through it, James, I mean, Job comes to greater maturity. God's in control of all things, over all created over, order. He controls all of it, you know, even the Leviathan, right? The evil, the accuser, Satan. And Job, after contending with God over his suffering, here's what he says at the end. Again, many of you are familiar with this. 42, 1 through 6. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. This is, I will question you, and you make it known, known to me. And Job says in verse 5, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What is his response? You remember when we went through Job quite some time, been made this point. Verse 6, he says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What's interesting is there, the first part of that, you know, maybe a better way of saying it is I despise my life because he's been he said that before. But then that word repent everywhere else in Job it's translated comfort. So what would make a lot of sense is Job saying I've come to this place. I despise my life. I sit in dust and ashes. But I've seen you. And I'm comforted. This is before Job got his stuff back. I'm sitting in dust, as a, dust and ashes, and I'm comforted because you showed up, God. He came to maturity. There is this death, this dying that occurs, that yields maturity, wholeness, fullness. Not perfection in the sense of, I'm perfect, I have no fault, but this, this completeness. That is the example that Job holds out to us, steadfastness. And then in deliverance, he gets double back. That is a real picture of this death and then resurrection, honor. So we can see how this would encourage James' readers. Once again, this, the root issue is this belief, and their hope is coming to be renewed, confidence in God's purposes, and his sovereign power and his rule over all things. 
Moreover, his hope, hope is in trusting that God will deliver, that God himself is trustworthy. But there's another way to read this last part that James gives us here. He says, Behold, we consider those, plural, blessed, who remain steadfast. You've heard of Job, of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose or end of the Lord. Older commentators take that up. The idea here could be that this is the Lord's final purpose, His fulfillment. That word gets used a lot to speak of the fulfillment of all things in Christ. So James would be saying, you've heard of Job, his steadfastness, and you've seen this example of steadfastness in the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remaining steadfast, Jesus both comes to full maturity, a fittedness. I'm going to say something just about that in a second. And he's resurrected in glory. It's sort of a nice fit. Job, death, resurrection. I mean, that's his whole story. He's dying, and then he's raised up a son. Christ, death. Vindicated, raised up a son. That's Romans 1. Other writers have really said this more explicitly than James does. And, you know, again, older commentators say it would be strange if James wasn't referring to Jesus here. But it accords with other writers. Hebrews Chapter 2 just nails it. Chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, he says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory, honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is the compassion and mercy that Job, I mean, James alludes to how the Lord is compassionate and mercy. Here is how we see that in Christ. He's raised to glory, not for himself, but for us. He takes us with him to glory. By his death, his suffering. And then in Hebrews 14 through 18, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How, 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 do, we, how do we get through this? What is it that breaks the breaks the power of sin that keeps us falling into either of these two holes. Christ is with us. He is ours. We are His. This is what He has done for us. In the midst of our suffering, lost cell phones, and persecution to death. We have this faithful high priest who doesn't just stand afar and say, oh, look at that. But one who has suffered just like us. One who knows our suffering probably better than we do. One who meets us in that suffering to bring help. Hope. The kind of hope that we need. The kind of hope that helps us to hold on. To hold fast to Him. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank You for this morning, we thank you for our time together. Lord, we pray that you would make us the kind of people that are shaped in a way that we glorify you in suffering, in persecution. And Father, we pray that you would shape us into that kind of people by your Spirit, by granting us a vision of you, by granting to us an understanding of uh, the ineffable, the incomprehensible, glorious one that you are, by cultivating in us a longing and a satisfaction in you. Lord, by causing us to see your beauty that pulls us in. Lord, I pray that you would help us to climb inside the world of these examples that you've given to us. Give us a taste for that as we see it in them. And Lord, we ask that you would do all of these things in the name of your Son.
Jesus Christ. Amen.